Hey, everybody. Hope that everyone had a great spa week and uh, did a lot of good advocacy for school psychology. We certainly had a fun time, I know, here at School Psych Podcast doing various events and things in our schools. Um, but uh, today we're going to be talking about, or tonight we're going to be talking about um, ACT. And really excited because I don't know very much about this at all. And I'm thinking that maybe there's some viewers out there who don't have really have not heard of this. So I think it's a really great topic to hit on. But I'm a, my name is Rachel. I'm a school psychologist working in Maryland. And I'm going to pass it over to Rebecca. Rebecca? Hi, everybody. I'm Rebecca. I'm a school psychologist working in the state of Connecticut. I got a shout out from a fellow Connecticut. Connecticuteer? No, I don't know. I'm sorry. I just totally made that up. A fellow resident of Connecticut recently. Um, so I am really happy to say hello to all my friends in Connecticut and um, very happy that you're tuning in. Um, anyway, I'd like to remind you how to participate. If you're watching us live, the easiest way to participate is on the YouTube live screen. You do have to sign in to your YouTube account, but then there's a chat box right alongside the, uh, the video where you can post your questions and comments. You can also tweet us and use the hashtag psychedpodcast on Twitter, and you can comment anywhere on the two Facebook pages, School Psyched, your school psychologist, or the School Psyched podcast page. You can post in messages or under um, any post that you see if you go to the, if you go to the main um, Facebook page, and I'll be looking out for notifications and looking out for you all. And here's another fellow person from Connecticut. If someone knows how to call us, please let me know in the chat. Here's Eric. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Uh, Connecticutonians? I'm not quite sure. We'll get it at some point. <laughs> um, well, we're excited to be here with our uh, two guests this evening, Drs. Sean O'Dell and Ahmad Zahir. And uh, to learn about acceptance commitment therapy, or as we've uh, been referring to it as ACT. So I'll tell you just a little bit about our uh, doctors this evening. Dr. O'Dell is a pediatric school psychologist working as a clinician investigator at Geisinger um, in central Pennsylvania. In his role as a clinician, he runs a pediatric integrated behavioral health clinic and provides clinical didactics in ACT and motivational interviewing for pre-doctoral interns and postdoctoral fellows in pediatric psychology. Um, in his role as an investigator, he conducts translational research with an emphasis, uh, psychological flexibility as potent and malleable process of change with relevance to youth, families, and healthcare. Current research projects related to ACT include developing and testing a web-based universal prevention and intervention for parents, studying how to best support families through the adjustment of receiving genomic results for their child, indicating increased risk uh, for adult onset medical conditions and program evaluations of an ATC, ACT group therapy intervention uh, delivered in primary care. So a lot of stuff you're doing, Dr. Odell, uh, really interesting. Uh, Dr. Zahir is a pediatric school psychologist working as the director for the clinical uh, clinic for evidence-based practices in schools as part of secondary and special education department at Montclair State University in New Jersey. He's also uh, the associate director for the Center for Clinical Research at MSU, which focuses on cross-disciplinary research for health-related concerns. Dr. Zahir has worked on numerous projects in clinics, hospitals, and public and alternative school settings that involve direct and indirect consultation services um, across individual group and classroom systems. His primary research and focus are on developing assessments 
uh, with focus on treatment utility and interventions for children with emotional and behavior disorders, uh, integrating multi-tiered systems of support um, and school-wide positive behavioral interventions to create uh, comprehensive school-based prevention programs. Um, with these areas of research, Dr. Zahir focuses on integrating and enhancing existing practices with um, ACT uh, therapy, and current projects include using ACT to enhance areas such as check and connections mentoring system, increase school buy-in for evidence-based interventions, uh, and with school professionals to increase fidelity of evidence-based interventions as well as self-care, which I think is uh, something important that we may talk about this evening too. So, um, so take it away, uh, Dr. Odell, Dr. Zahir. We're excited to hear uh, more about um, uh, ACT. Great. Um, so uh, what we'll do is we'll actually just uh, jump straight in. I'm gonna share my screen here. Uh, and what we're hoping to do today, uh, hi, I'm Imad, because uh, uh, you can't tell which one is which. Um, and what I'm going to do is just jump straight into our PowerPoint. Uh, we have a little bit of an intro, and then we'll go into a little bit more of an informal conversation of, around uh, acceptance commitment therapy. So let me just share my screen here. All right. And just jump in. So what we want to talk about today is uh, acceptance and commitment therapy, and specifically how it relates to school psychology. Uh, many of you may have already heard about it. Uh, it's something that's uh, it's been around in clinical psychology for much longer, uh, and something that we're starting to see more and more come to school psychology. So we have a very kind of um, uh, small agenda today. We want to do a quick overview of psychological flexibility, which is kind of the key target that ACT tries to uh, change. Uh, and of course, go through ACT itself in terms of what does the treatment uh, involve. Um, and then, like I said, we want to share some of the different experiences we've had in applying ACT to clinical situations and really connecting it to the experiences and, and things that school psychologists are often faced with. So looking to see how acceptance commitment therapy can benefit school psychology practice. Um, and then what we want to do is do a group activity to demonstrate ACT at the end. Uh, it can be a little bit uh, difficult to get a sense of how ACT actually works. It's not a linear uh, treatment approach. So we wanted to end with a concrete activity to make sure that um, listeners can really get a sense of what this, what this actually involves. Um, so we'll get to that and we will do some self-care as part of that activity. Um, and hopefully that will kind of uh, wrap us up nicely. Uh, so I wanted to just start off with actually giving a definition of what psychological flexibility is, considering that's the, the main target here. Um, and it's kind of a, a skill that's similar to emotional regulation and a lot of the other uh, topics that we have out there um, in terms of mental health. Um, but here's, here's a definition that I think we find um, pretty straightforward. Uh, so psychological flexibility is the ability to experience uh, and notice uh, uncomfortable internal content like thoughts, emotions, and memories, and still persist in action towards what or who you value. Um, so basically, how do we have difficult uh, emotions and thoughts and still be able to move towards things that are important to us? Uh, so in a very simple case, this might be where we're nervous to give a presentation um, and we take on those nerves and still move forward in giving that presentation if that's something that we value. Um, so based on this construct, uh, acceptance and commitment therapy, or sometimes even called uh, training if it's not being done in the clinical context, uh, was designed to address this process. Uh, and the first part of, of acceptance is really focusing on how do we get more flexible with 
difficult emotional content or difficult um, internal content that we have? How do we diffuse from our thoughts? Um, and, you know, traditional CBT terms, these might be our thought traps. Um, and just kind of become more mindful with what the emotional experience that we're having. Um, the other part of it is, is looking at the commitment piece. So how do we, once you've uh, had those emotional flexibility skills, how do we commit to taking different action? Uh, thinking about, you know, what, what we actually value, um, not just what our goals are. So things that we value might be broader in terms of, you know, friendships, um, whereas our goal might be, you know, going out to a social event with our friends over the weekend. Um, and then once we have those values and our goals, how do we make sure that we actually follow through with it with very specific actions? Uh, so that's kind of the, the two big key concepts here in terms of the, the actual ability that we're targeting and then the, the treatment itself. But what I wanted to do was uh, go a little bit into the history of how we actually got here uh, and how acceptance and commitment therapy came about. So um, just a very, very quick um, uh, throwback to, uh, you know, back in the 1950s and 1960s when we had uh, a behavioral approach towards um, interventions coming up, a kind of a functional approach. Uh, it was very much focused on evidence-based principles. So uh, we didn't have many principles at the time, but they were focused on, you know, how do we apply reinforcement as a, as a principle of change and see if we can get improvements in clinical situations. Uh, and this is where we had a lot of work done in applied behavior analysis. Um, and eventually we have, uh, you know, modern interventions and, and frameworks like positive behavioral intervention and supports. Um, but this was also being applied in behavior therapy. So in a lot of um, traditional therapy rooms and in psychiatric conditions. And eventually this was, uh, you know, built upon to come to modern cognitive behavior therapy. And one of the things that we noticed was that on the side of applied behavior analysis and PBIS, um, they really carried forward that functional approach that was there from the beginning. Uh, so really looking to see for the individual how, you know, what's the function of their, of their behavior in this moment. Um, but what it really lacked was kind of the depth and the scope to address the full range of, of cognitive concerns. And of course, this is why we have cognitive behavior therapy is to really be able to address those more cognitive uh, concerns. Um, unfortunately, on the cognitive end, even though we had this added advantage of now being able to address um, you know, concerns related to our thoughts and our emotions, um, we lost contact with uh, that more functional approach and really looking at principles of change. And we started to move more towards, um, you know, packages and, and techniques and manuals. Um, so luckily, what's happened over the last few years, and actually over the last two decades, is these uh, two different uh, kind of streams have started to come together. Um, and the, one of the newer fields that integrates this, uh, these traditions is called contextual behavioral science. And it's really going back to that original idea of having a functional contextual thinking. So really thinking about any behavior that we're engaging in, you know, what's the function of it, um, and looking at the context of the individual to figure out what, what that function is. Um, and context being very broad, so thinking about context outside of the skin, uh, what's in the world, um, but also looking at the context within us. Um, and out of this work, this is where we get acceptance commitment therapy. Um, oftentimes we'll call it training or a model because it's not necessarily only a clinical therapy. It's a model to uh, explain human change um, and how we can change a behavior towards um, improving hum the human condition rather than uh, just kind of describing it or, or understanding it. And one of the reasons why uh, Sean and I really work in this area and really um, take to acceptance commitment therapy is that uh, we think it's ideal for school psychologists who live in both worlds often. So we're doing a little bit of ABA and PBIS. Um, and oftentimes we're in the counseling room or in a therapy room doing 
you know, CBT or other forms of counseling. Um, and probably in many other different rooms as well. We're testing students, we're um, involved in academic interventions. And one of the nice things about contextual behavioral science and the acceptance commitment model is that it really tries to create a model that focuses on the full scope of, of concerns that school psychologists address. So uh, a lot of times I know from my training, it was very frustrating to be in a situation where I'm in, in a classroom with a student and I'm doing a functional behavior assessment. Um, and then when I go into, you know, referring to a child to therapy, um, we were doing something completely different in, once we went into therapy. So um, with acceptance commitment therapy, there is really no, none of those discontinuation in terms of what we're doing in the classroom with an FBA versus what we would be doing in the therapy room. Uh, so it really provides us kind of a framework to make sure that our work is more coherent um, and we can actually better integrate all the different services that are in a school setting. Um, so with that uh, little bit of uh, uh, background information, uh, what we wanted to do was uh, present what psychological flexibility involves. Um, and one of the difficulties of explaining this is that there's many different uh, ways of looking at this process. Um, and it's done purposely, uh, so we want to be flexible with the models that we're using. So we already gave a definition of what psychological flexibility is. Um, but we can also look at it as uh, two distinct processes. So we have the acceptance skills and the commitment skills. Um, but if we look at this uh, triangle here, it also uh, has, if you can think of it as three different processes. So if we look at the tip of this triangle, um, we have the open up process. And it's really how do we open up to the experience of uh, what's showing up inside of us, uh, whatever emotion or thought or memory that might be. Um, and on the top of the triangle, being present. Uh, those are a lot of our mindfulness skills. So how, how can we be in the moment um, and noticing what's happening around us? Uh, and then finally, on the, on the right side, uh, do what matters. So how do we actually translate these acceptance and uh, opening up skills to changing our actions? Um, and if we want to go even further and look at it even closer, uh, you can see on the sides of the triangle, there's uh, six different processes there. Um, and so in open up, we have diffusion and acceptance. Um, and those are targeting two slightly different things. Uh, acceptance tends to be for how do we accept uh, uncomfortable, unwanted experiences, whereas diffusion is looking more at uh, how do we get out of a fused state with our thoughts? Um, this is similar to in traditional CBT where we're looking at thought traps. Um, I always give the example of, you know, if I've had an argument with someone and I'm in a car later on, and if I'm still in the argument with that person in my head while I'm in the car, um, I'm very much fused with that thought, with that event that happened. And how, how can I diffuse from that so I'm not reliving that event uh, psychologically? Um, when we look at, if we can go up the triangle and we look at things like contact with the present moment, um, that's very much what we're thinking often about uh, mindfulness skills. Um, how, how can we be in the moment, noticing the things that are happening to us, uh, noticing colors around us, and really being responsive to what's happening to, our, uh, to us in this environment? Um, self as context tends to uh, be more about when we're having uh, different thoughts or feelings where we can actually take perspective within ourselves to notice that these are events that are happening. Uh, so if I have the thought that, you know, I'm a failure, um, I can notice that I'm having the thought rather than I'm, I'm actually, you know, actually a failure. Um, so the more self-perspective taking I can take, the more I can uh, observe that thought happening rather than um, really believing that thought. And then finally, on the, on the right side, we have uh, values. Um, and again, the values are that pure peace beyond goals. So a lot of times we'll focus on, you know, what direction it, uh, people want to actually move towards. Um, and then committed actions are, are very concrete actions that we actually want to take. 
um, towards the things that we value. Um, so there's a lot of information here. Um, and again, like I said, we want to just kind of present a little bit of background before we start to talk about how we apply this clinically. Um, so I'm going to actually turn this over to Sean here um, and see if he can lead us toward, through a clinical discussion. Yeah. And uh, before I get into that, I just want to kind of pause because there's a lot of information that was just shared. Are there any uh, questions or comments so far? I don't think I have anything so far. Um, I had posted out if anyone has been using it. I know we have a viewer who's familiar with it but hasn't used it. No. Um, so I'm just, yeah, I'm, I'm learning. I don't know. Rebecca. Uh, and, and, I'm learning a lot as well. I guess in my mind, I can't help but um, compare it to what I know about CBT. I feel like CBT is more familiar to me, so I'm always trying to look at, well, what's the same and what's different? I don't know mm -hmm. if that's a useful thing to do. Um, at, at given given um, Ahmad's first slide, it, it seems ACT in general seems to come from a lot of different places, and I guess that's one thing that I learned. I thought it was sort of a version like mindfulness-based CBT. I thought ACT was kind of a version of CBT. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I think we're always um, comparing uh, new things that we learn about from our past experience. And I think more people now are starting out maybe in their first year even or even before that in, in graduate training, getting some exposure to ACT now. But, you know, for me, people um, listening or uh, we started out kind of learning CBT or behavior therapy. And so I think we're all, that, that's pretty natural. Um, so one uh, major difference uh, between ACT and CBT, and first of all, I, I would just kind of reframe a little bit to say that ACT is a form of CBT, like it is a cognitive behavior therapy. Um, there are many differences all the way down to differences in philosophical assumptions that make some of the techniques uh, actually more flexible in the end, whereas um, with CBT, a lot of the techniques um, uh, can be applied uh, across different populations, but they tend to look very similar. Um, and the reason for that is the approach to language and cognition in ACT is fundamentally different. And uh, with from an ACT perspective, you wouldn't necessarily try to deal with uh, cognition or language by directly altering or changing it, if that makes sense. You wouldn't necessarily uh, get into disputes with a client about whether or not, you know, uh, the, the truth is there. Is that true is, or is it irrational? It would be, well, what is that? What is the impact of that? What is the function of that? If you live your life according to that thought, what happens for you? And is that giving you the life you want? So it's just a reframe of the whole question. That's really interesting. And I have heard, um, you know, the, the process of disputing thoughts criticized for that reason, that people feel like, well, of course it's true. I just told you it's true. <laughs> what do you mean? You know, um, that they just feel like if you're, if you're trying to get them to challenge their perspective, that it feels somewhat offensive or insulting <laughs> to say, is that true or is that helpful? You know, to just say to present it like that. So I like that point a lot. Sure. And, you know, if you're, if you're challenging something with a client, I think no matter what you, what kind of therapy brand you say you're using, I think you still have to consider strongly the impact within the context of the therapeutic relationship. And do you have, you know, kind of a strong basis there to, 
go into more uh, kind of challenging or disputation. Um, so I don't I don't think that it necessarily is bad or wrong to get into any of those techniques. I would I would definitely kind of back away from saying anything like that. Um, and for me, uh, one of the things that stands out can be very easy to get into that territory where, um, yes, you might be able to kind of look at it as a third person or an objective person and say, well, I don't I don't see any kind of uh, basis in what other people would observe that gives any su support to that thought being true. But then think about it in a context of something like chronic pain. That that really might never go away. So a thought that I'm always going to have this pain could be true. But then what do you do about that? And so I think it's um, something that people can. We all do this. This is the psychology of the normal uh, to get into these places in our lives where we decide that we can't be living our life the way that we want until pain will go away or until you're kind of free from whatever has been bugging you or whatever would end up even in an irrational thought. And I want to say um, kind of off topic, but I liked the graphic of the brain doing the yoga for psychological flexibility. I really like to uh, think about psychological flexibility uh, to take kind of maybe even a little more of the jargon out is to say, just call it flexible strength. And I think the flexible brain <laughs> uh, doing yoga, that's how you know someone's really strong and flexible. If they do yoga and it looks easy, you know, <laughs> they look graceful doing it. Uh, so, it, you know, some of these concepts can sound simple, but doing it uh, is really humbling yeah. all the time. Sean, I just wanted to also add that I think um, the other aspect of the difference between CBT and ACT is um, oftentimes what the goal is of treatment. Um, so one of the things that um, ACT, I think, pursues more directly is not necessarily even trying to reduce uh, symptoms or things that might be um, getting people stuck, but more focused on what are what's the life that you want to live. Um, so what are those those big values and and you know actions that you want to take? And you know I think it all often poses the question of you know even if you had this anxiety or if you had you know this kind of chronic pain, um, you know. Separate from that is the type of life you want to live. And so um, I think that's one of the big changes that they, we've had even in terms of the outcome measures we use in research. Um, and I think one of the hard things that ACT researchers had to do originally was to convince reviewers that, you know, quality of life measure is more important than the symptom reduction measure. Um, so I think that's one of the, when I was thinking of the difference between the two, it's um, slightly different targets. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, good point. I also think it kind of can, I don't want to go too much into the weeds on it, but it can also be a difference in what you think psychopathology is in the first place. And so if you kind of think that the symptoms are an indicator of some underlying latent disease that's there, there's something wrong in your mind or in your brain, right? You can map it back there. Then it's easy to take that uh, literally true, right? That the, the symptoms that we'd see, um, on the behavioral level or social level, do map down to biological processes, and uh, there's not much evidence for that. So um, if you think about it in that way, if you're, uh, take a mod's example about giving a talk, how can you move towards what matters to you? If you're communicating uh, active school psychologists, for instance, right, and you're going to, you, you can only, you can do that, but you can't do that without 
having anxiety maybe right or you I, we could just both wait Ahmad and I can both wait to give this talk until we feel no anxiety at all <laughs> right and maybe we'll wait a few decades to do that uh, or, or you know we're going to be on this on the way right and it's actually funny because I always uh, bring up that example because um, I have very high levels of anxiety um, and uh, specifically related to public speaking. And I always love mentioning that when I'm doing public speaking. Um, and I almost always get the response of, but you're so good at it. And, or we would never notice that you had that anxiety. And, and I think anybody that has high level anxiety knows that people get very good at hiding it. Um, so we almost often model a, almost like this idea that somehow we overcome our anxiety rather than anxiety is a natural part of that process. Um, the more important something is, the more we value it you know, the anxiety is a sign that we actually value that piece of it. And so when I'm in schools and oftentimes in classrooms, so when I'm not explicitly doing ACT, um, a lot of my conversations, especially with high schoolers, is about that. I'll, I'll actually, you know, as we're just talking about their weekend and how things went, um, I'll strike up a conversation and say, well, I'm doing a PD later. I'm really nervous about this. And, and they almost always say like, oh, well, why are you doing it? You should just, you know, not do it. And, and I tell them like, well, you know, like I actually really value this. I, I enjoy working with my colleagues and, and sharing my ideas. Um, and then I kind of throw the question back at them and say, well, I'm sure there's something in your life that you, you know, really find important and you do it even if you're, you're scared or it's not something you really like. Um, and even when I'm working with, you know, children with pretty extreme emotional um, behavioral challenges in alternative settings, um, it's always surprising to me that they can find something that, they can relate to on that, you know, a little brother that they stick up for or something that they're doing that, you know, can help them um, pull them forward in terms of what they value, even if they're having that emotional uh, turmoil. Yeah, I, I love that point. And it reminds me of also the other point of the triangle of being um, sort of present and mindfully aware. I remember reading, I think it was Ellen Langer, who did a study of public speakers where they asked one group to just be fully present as they were speaking. They were already knowledgeable about the topic and they asked the other group to make sure to do these, you know, great things for public speaking. And they found that the group that was mindful during their speech were marked as, as more, um, having more expertise, being more charismatic, just on, on so many different levels. They just did a much better job. So uh, I like that example for us to keep in mind as we are hopefully talking about act um, with other people. <laughs> yeah. And it's, you know, the values piece of that stands out to me as important too, because um, you can be as, as present as you want to be and really open yourself up to a lot of uncomfortable, even painful private experiences. But why the heck would you do that? If it's not connected to something that matters to you, like, and you shouldn't be, in, you know, from my perspective, encouraging clients to do that either. You're just, I mean, you're just <laughs> torturing people at that point. <laughs> so there's, I think there's enough uh, pain that life will throw at you no matter what you do. Um, that it's really kind of learning and being present for the purpose of sorting out, is it worth it for me? Is it, you know, what I'm doing here and now worth opening myself up to something uncomfortable if it means, you know, kind of taking one step closer to uh, a life that's more worth living. What happens then when you have like that high school student who doesn't care about the course and doesn't care about you know giving the presentation and doesn't care that they get a bad grade? Then like, what would 
ACT say to that? Because as school psychologists, we want them to do well. We, we, we see the big picture of you want to graduate, you want to go on. Um, if they don't see that value. Um, I'll let you start on that one, Ahmad. Right. So, and, and this always reminds me of one student that I always bring up as an example. Um, and he was, uh, it was an alternative school. And one of my students, I remember, would actually just come and sit at the library as a high school student, and he would do nothing. And he was doing this for months. And he was right across the hall from me so I could see him. And, and this would just get under my skin uh, because he just showed up. He, didn't, he wasn't disruptive like a lot of the other students. He just sat there. And I would even go to him and ask him, like, why do you come? And he would always tell me, like, well, people are nice to me here. Um, and so that was, that was enough of a reason for him to come, but we couldn't get him into class. He would actually sit there and read in the library, but he wouldn't read in the class. And so one of the challenges with us was that we couldn't even start the conversation on, on the values piece. Um, so he wasn't willing to even sit on the table with us. Um, but we did, you know, take notice of what his behavior was telling us that he actually valued. And one of the things that we noticed was that he was always interactive with, say, the first graders. And this, this is a school that went from first grade to 12th grade. Um, and, and he likes reading, clearly. And so, you know, we actually worked with him on saying one day that, well, we need someone else to, you know, also read to the first graders today. Um, can you help us out? Um, so it was kind of a low, you know, demand uh, on him, something we knew he already liked by seeing, you know, what his behavior told us about what he valued. Um, and got him to start doing it. And eventually we were actually uh, able to build off of that to have that longer conversation with him about what exactly he actually values or what he finds important. Um, and oftentimes in those kind of situations, um, you know, we have to meet the student where they are. Um, and, you know, when, when thinking about ACT, um, you know, there's often very formal ways of doing it where if you're, you know, like if you go to Sean in, in a hospital setting, you fill out some intake forms and you do this kind of work. Whereas in schools, you know, uh, I often look for, you know, where can I intervene with this student in this moment? That's kind of a, a good opportunity for me to work on one of these act processes. Um, I'm not doing therapy with them. Um, I'm just looking to see, can I, can I push that value piece a little bit in this moment um, where I notice there's something about first graders and helping younger kids plus the reading piece. Um, so that's usually how I try to approach it is to try to, you know, uh, use the value that I see and hook the students in. Uh, yeah, often, uh, for, for my part, I'm not in the business of prescribing values to people. Uh, so, you know, if, if a certain behavior academically is not there that an adult would like to see, maybe even we'd all agree that it's very important uh, for uh, a kid to be doing <laughs> uh, the academics that are uh, set out for them in the curriculum. It's, it's just a matter of, you know, kind of what stands in the way. And Ahmad's, you know, speaking a lot to, well, what does motivate them and how can you kind of frame certain activities that are academic activities in line with what they do care about? Uh, the other thing that, uh, and, uh, and obviously working in a hospital setting, it's mostly uh, not happening between students and the child. Uh, it's happening between parents and the child. But the same kind of thing, especially when you get into adolescence, uh, the older you get, the less control you have over kids. And yet, uh, oftentimes we hold on to trying to push around consequences to motivate kids to change their behavior. Um, and they get into reactant spaces uh, very quickly with that. And then uh, often their peers are also reinforcing those kinds of behaviors too. So um, for me, it just ends up being a place where you, you kind of can't get there from here. 
just pushing around consequences and trying to make it aversive enough that a kid will change because they they're smarter than that. They know they can wait you out. They know you know they know that they can get under your skin and, and they will. So uh, for me, it's it's a lot about partnership um, and trying to take uh, small and reasonable steps and build up larger and larger patterns that change over time. Right. And I also see there's a question about um, the age range for ACT. Um, and so, and I, I think Sean and I talked about this too, of addressing it with, um, it's uh, a lot of the research started off in the adult world um, of, of you know, doing adult therapy. Um, and in the last few years, there's been a lot more studies being done with um, children and adolescents. Um, I would say there's probably more research for adolescents than there is for children. Um, and, but also one of the things that we mentioned about ACT is that it really, um, the research supports the, the model more than it does looking at necessarily you know, having it generalized to every specific population. So um, oftentimes you mentioned that it's kind of a, a transdiagnostic model or maybe more accurately like a, a dimensional model. Um, so it's looking at that, this process as a very human process that um, happens in, in all of us. Um, but one thing we always look for, for obviously for younger children is, you know, how do we make it more developmentally appropriate? Um, so, you know, we're not having deep conversations about what you value with a first grader. Um, you know, it's often, what do you like? Um, and, you know, what would you like to do today? Um, so we kind of make it, you know, baby values and then try to bring it down to what the students might be interested in. Um, and even at the high school level, a lot of times we're actually building out the idea of what a value is. Um, I mean, I've worked with a lot of ninth and 10th graders who, if you ask them what they, what you value, they kind of are confused about that. And they're not really sure both what they value or even what you're asking. Um, so oftentimes the task changes a little bit based on, on the age. Um, and we try to kind of promote some of these skills. Um, otherwise, if we're working with an adult or a, a you know, late teen, um, it looks a little bit more similar to a lot of the protocols that are out there. Um, so I think, um, I don't know, Sean, if you want to go, if you should go into the activity. Um, yeah, that, that makes sense given time. Yeah. Okay, so... Uh, as I mentioned in the beginning, um, one of the challenges of ACT is, and it's very explicitly made to be this way, is that it's not a linear process. Um, and in fact, like you saw that there's not even one process, there's either one or six or even more. Um, so, which becomes incredibly hard to train on. Uh, so how do we, how do we give you a manual that, you know, you can follow from step, you know, A through, a through Z. Um, so what we thought was, you know, we can at least walk through one type of, uh, way of doing act, uh, and show you an activity. So you have a sense of what it looks like. Um, with the caveat that, um, this is not just a right way of doing act. It's just one, one strategy of, of doing that. Um, so I'm going to share my screen back here, and we'll go into our um, PowerPoints. All right. So um, the activity we're going to do is called the ACT Matrix, um, and we're hoping our, our host uh, can and participate with us, along with uh, Sean and I, who will be um, engaging in, in the activity as well. Uh, so I'm going to kind of get our feet wet and, and look to see if we can relate to some of the experiences that um, are brought up when we're, when we're doing ACT. Uh, and one thing that I think Sean, uh, Sean and I were uh, also going to mention earlier was that um, there's a lot of uh, metaphors used in ACT, um, and one of the big ones that we often use is um, that we're in the same boat as the individuals we're working with. Um, so when we relate our own experience with a lot of these processes, um, we're often modeling 
uh, for the individuals we're working with to see if they can also relate to this experience. So um, as we go through this activity, you'll see that, you know, we might jump in at some point and, and share our experience and just kind of keep that conversation going. Um, I also like to do the act matrix because um, I joke that it's very cheap. It's literally this diagram that you're seeing in front of you right now. It's uh, two lines. Um, if you're not seeing this on YouTube, you imagine just a plus sign with uh, the horizontal line having arrows going in opposite directions. Um, so, you know, you can draw this on a piece of paper, on a blackboard. Um, you can make it in sand if you want to. It's uh, so it's, that it's not a triangle, too. I'm, I'm overloaded on triangles with all these lines. <laughs> we have plus signs now, so... Yeah. <laughs> um, so, and we did have one triangle in there, so that's our requirement as school psychologists. Um, we got to do it. <laughs> uh, I think Ed Shapiro, our uh, mutual professor, used to always say that it's almost like the law of school psychology. We have to have one triangle um, in all of our presentations. Um, but with this diagram, it's actually something that, you know, is very easy to do no matter where we are. Um, and in fact, if you're uh, following us on, on YouTube, you can actually draw this out in front of you. And what we start doing with the ACT Matrix is just explaining what this diagram actually means. So on the top of the diagram, we put our five senses. And so this basically on the top two boxes over here on, uh, in this diagram, we're looking at the world of actions, um, which we'll often call the outside view. And this is basically everything that we can experience with our five senses. So uh, if we have something in front of us, like a pen or a pencil, you know, we can use our eyes to see it. We can uh, tap it on something to see what kind of sound it's making. Um, we probably don't want to taste it. Um, but, you know, we can touch it with our fingers so we can, you know, interact with it with our five senses. Um, on the bottom of this diagram, we have our mind or our, our mental experience. Uh, so the, la the bottom two boxes is really looking at our internal experience. So this is the world of our mind or our inside view. Um, and what we want to do is just starting off is to notice the difference. Um, so a lot of times we will actually do this as an activity with younger kids. Um, and we know young kids struggle with having, um, you know, a very clear distinction of um, what's happening outside in the world versus what they're thinking about. Um, so we actually help them go through this activity. We'll actually ask them to close their eyes and now imagine that pencil. Um, you know, imagine seeing that pencil. Imagine hearing that pencil being tapped on something. Uh, imagine touching that pencil as you're, um, you know, you have your eyes closed. So that's our uh, first distinction. Um, and then the second one, now we're going to go from left to right, um, is on the left side, we're looking at what it feels like when we're moving away from something um, or trying to get away from something. And then on the right side, we're looking at how does it uh, feel like when we're moving towards something. So these are things that we are, you know, moving towards and getting closer to or maybe even want to get to uh, towards. Um, and again, we just want to notice that difference. Um, so, you know, we can even take a second to think about certain things that may make us want to move away um, versus things that might want to move us towards. Um, I always think about this in terms of uh, deadlines. Um, so there are certain deadlines I just wanted away from me um, and or the aversiveness of missing a deadline. So I'm just trying to get it away and be done with versus maybe something I'm just really interested in, passionate about. And, and I kind of want to move towards that project, usually what I'm using to procrastinate with. Um, so that's our two different distinctions that we make using the ACT matrix. Um, and as you can see in the center, uh, we always keep that me noticing piece. Um, and what we want to do is really map on our, our experience onto this uh, diagram. Um, so what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to click out of our, our PowerPoints here. I'm going to keep this up. And once we have our, our diagram here, 
Now what we can start to do is in each one of these uh, quadrants or these boxes, um, we have very specific questions. So on the lower right side, um, so in, the, uh, in our mental experience and moving towards, our first question is, uh, what is important to you? What or who is important to you? And so what I'd like you to do is um, just you can call out. And what I'm going to do is as we're you know, giving out examples of what's important to us, I'll start to type it underneath over here. Um, so like family. Family, that's a great one. Children, my children and my students. Doing a good job. Partnership. Growth. Health and fitness. <laughs> Creativity. This kind of goes along with health. I'll put sleep on here. Uh, yes. <laughs> if you're putting that up there, can I put coffee up there? <laughs> yeah, it pulls in the opposite directions, but chocolate. <laughs> if any viewers are watching and have anything they want us to add, <laughs> type it out. Yeah. This is a great list. Um, anything else for what's important to us or who? Um, is it terrible to put money? <laughs> That's a good one. I'd say like downtime. Mm hmm. Sometimes a really good one. I wish I had more of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh, we have a viewer comment, spiritual health. Yep. Yeah. Great one. Um, I'm trying to think how to phrase this, but like being challenged, I guess, that you know, like school psychology is an engaging, challenging field, I feel. If I went to work every day and was, you know, just bored and it was too easy, then, you know. Yeah. I was being challenged but not over-challenged to the point of burnout. Mm -hmm. Yes. And then we, uh, Corey has, a, a, we've got another viewer comment, friends and community. Good one. Friends community. And I think some amount of appreciation. We're just coming off spa week where we were trying to <laughs> trying to um, engage people in, in some appreciation mm -hmm. and aware through awareness. <laughs> so psychologist. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so we can uh, if we come up with other ones. Uh, this is a great list. Uh, there's a lot on here. Um, and what's always kind of interesting to me is that no matter when we do this activity or where we do it, um, and Sean and I have done this um, across the country now, um, we see almost the same list. Um, sometimes there's a dog on there instead of a cat or both. Um, I like dogs as well, I'll put them on there. Um, and, you know, many different animals. But one of the nice things is that, you know, when we do this with teenagers um, or, or adults or people from opposite political leanings, 
um, we kind of tend to see, tend to see the same same list of what's important to us. The only time that changes is my first graders, where we get a lot of trucks and Barbies and <laughs> and, Barbies. Um, and you know we can eventually get to something uh, you know more meaningful, moms and dads and and relationships. But um, we tend to see that kind of similar list. So that's that's great. We have a really good list of what's important to us. If anything else shows up, uh, let me know. Um, what I want to do now is shift to the left and look at the away calm still within our minds. And now we want to ask the question of what shows up inside that gets in the way of, of moving towards those things that are important to us. Um, so these could be our thoughts, our memories, um, feelings, um, even just associations that we might have. Um, I'll put mine on here. Anxiety. Mm -hmm. Deadlines. <laughs> yeah. So like maybe a thought about the deadline? Yeah, like a, the time pressure gets in my way. I guess it's a kind of anxiety, but specific to time. Mm -hmm. Or to like just even physically just feeling that. Distractions. I don't know how we put that. A lack, lack of focus, perhaps. Lack of focus. Obligations. Um, how would we translate that to something uh, In, mental? Yeah, mental. Um, uh, I guess when I'm thinking of my current obligations, the guilt over devoting enough time to mm -hmm. things like being a team mom for my son and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Guilt. Um, guilt. <laughs> Another comment, uh, a comment for trauma. Mm -hmm. That could be memories or feelings. Um, and lack of money was a, another good comment. Okay, so maybe three thoughts about lack of money. Um, yeah, I'm looking at a lot of those, and to me, they kind of, like, summarize almost with just stress. Like, if that... Mm -hmm. like, okay, yeah. Stress is a big one. Doubt. Mm. Expectations. Like sometimes I feel like um, I put maybe too high of expectations on, on other people and then I'm disappointed. <laughs> or on ourselves too, right? Self, yeah. <laughs> Perfectionism. Perfectionism. And for me, sometimes it can be kind of a, a self-righteousness where I'm really sure I'm right about something. And it kind of makes me pretty rigid about whatever I'm doing. I was going to add um, difficult emotions in relationships like anger, irritation. Irritation. Our viewer, Corey, had a good point that uh, seems like all different ways to say anxiety and fear. Yeah. Yeah, right there. Usually the bigger categories that we can have there. Uh, a lot of times our uh, clients will mention very specific thoughts that start to show up. Um, sometimes not in the first session, but as they get used to the activity, um, they start to kind of really pin down. And uh, you can see here, I just, uh, for some of the thoughts, I'll put, put them in quotation, um, just so we can distinguish them a little bit. 
And so this is an activity that you do with clients. How, how frequently is it something that you do every session to check in with them? Is it something that comes up, you know, every so often or. It's kind of an activity. So if we're using this as our, our way of doing act, um, we would use it every session. Um, and every session tends to just uh, naturally evolve into the next stage of it. Um, so the first stage that we're in right now, we're just sorting uh, the experience of the client. So right now we're kind of thinking about what they value and then what are some things that might be internal that are pulling them away from those things that they value. Um, so uh, let's jump up here. Uh, so we have a great list for what's uh, showing up inside. Uh, so now if we go to the top of the diagram uh, on the left side still, so things that might be moving us away. Um, now here we want to ask a question of what are some actions that, uh, that you take that move you away from what's important to you? So now we're actually looking for those very overt actions that we might engage in. Um, and again, I'll go first. I'll put my favorite one. Um, so for those uh, watching through or listening through audio, uh, Netflix has been implicated here. <laughs> Um, Facebook for me. Yeah. <laughs> Arguing. Yeah. I've just been introduced to plants versus zombies, and that's uh, uh, a lot of my time lately. <laughs> Some video game apps, I guess. Video game apps, yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Ahmad and I have this whole class of behaviors called productive procrastination, basically doing stuff that's not related to who or what matters to us at that moment. <laughs> We're yes. so good about getting stuff done. Yeah. I love I to clean, clean when I'm procrastinating. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Any other ones that we do? Um, snack. <laughs> Junk food. <laughs> no food. Yeah. When you're not sleeping. Yeah. <laughs> we have a viewer comment uh, related to the procrastination, um, like tweaking report templates when I really need to be writing the report. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, actually, yeah. Uh, a teenage client right now who came to the realization that she's uh, has a lot of time and she's spending it studying um, and working on organizational study skills. Um, but she's spending a lot of time working on um, low priority assignments. Uh, and so kind of the same thing. She's just, you know, spinning her wheels on that rather than focusing on the areas where she might be struggling in. Mm. So I think we all tend to do that. <laughs> um, so um, again, we have a really good list over here, and I'm going to kind of go to our final question, just looking at our, our time as well. Uh, so now we're going to move to the top right uh, box over here and now ask the opposite question. Uh, what are some actions that we take that move us towards those things that are important to us? Prioritizing. Setting boundaries. Self-care. Limiting time on time wasters. Is 
spending time. So I think both family and friends. Um, yeah. Yeah. Scheduling things. I, I find that if I put it on my calendar, I'm more likely to get it done mm -hmm. than just kind of making a mental note. Yeah, scheduling things. Um, Taking a break from things that are too time consuming, I guess, or distracting. And sometimes for me, uh, one of the best things I can do is just say no. Mm. <laughs> pass, some, pass up an opportunity. Mm -hmm. I always say one of the things that I, uh, I struggle with is just getting started. Mm. So take that first step, mm -hmm. uh, no matter what, which one of those are, the, which important thing I'm working towards. All right. Any other uh, toward moves that we make? Connecting. Mm -hmm. like just connecting. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know, like being thankful or appreciative or. Yeah, like doing something to demonstrate gratitude. Yeah. So we have a really great list across all four of these categories. Um, and, um, you know, so we can see kind of what the, what our um, matrix here looks like. And if we're creating our own individual ones, it would be even more, more personalized to what we're doing. And what we often try to do when we're working with the matrix is as our next step, once there's, uh, we've sorted our experience in, in this format is that we can actually now start to kind of go through and also try to see if there's any connections on the left side over here. So, you know, if we're feeling more stress, how much time do we end up uh, eating, you know, junk food, right? And then if we're eating junk food and maybe we feel, um, you know, guilty or, or more stressed because we're not living up to our health goals and how much that kind of cycles us right back to, to that stress um, or, you know, having doubt. Um, I've certainly had that in my life and may lead to anxiety and not sleeping. And, you know, of course, that will lead back to something else uh, down here on the list. Um, and so we start to kind of see this uh, cycle building up. And one of the main tasks that we often try to do here is to see how we can take these experiences that we're having here um, and using a lot of those acceptance strategies to say, how do we shift our, our behaviors um, to engaging in more of these toward moves? Um, and even better yet, how do we remind ourselves of, of what's important early on um, and really be able to move ourselves towards doing these actions more and more? Um, so a lot of times when we're over here on the, on the left side, these, uh, especially these internal events that are showing up, we can often think about these as our antecedents um, and, and really trying to see what is our behavior serving? Are we, you know, having these kinds of initial uh, internal experiences? And is it, you know, our response to those internal experiences, is it moving us towards those things that we value or, you know, in, in a very broad sense of those big reinforcers in life? Or are we moving... Um, away from it and engaging in some of these uh, away moves. Um, so when we're looking at this um, exercise, we want to try to have more and more of our actions that are going to move us towards the right side, towards those things that are important to us. Um, and we know in the long run, that's going to provide us with a lot more satisfaction and contentment. Um, whereas a lot of times when we're taking an action towards the left side on those away moves, um, oftentimes it's actually a relief move. Um, we're just so overwhelmed or maybe the emotions are getting the best of us 
and, and we're looking for some kind of reprieve from, from those emotions. Um, and one thing that we often try to say is that we really want to not make this another way that we beat ourselves up. Um, so we practice a lot of self-compassion when we're, when we're looking at this activity. Um, and we like to kind of think of it as, you know, if we're in a situation where we need self-care, um, we're stressed out about reports and deadlines and other things that are going on in our life. Um, what kind of balance can we strike? Um, you know, can we, we all being human, we're never, we're never going to be doing a hundred percent of our tour moves. Um, but can we set ourselves a nice balance, you know, whether that's a 20% away moves and 80% away moves to, you know, 40% away moves to 60% toward moves. And honestly, for me, depending on the week, um, you know, it fluctuates, but as a whole, you know, I want my actions to be moving towards those things that are important to me. So how do I keep calibrating? How do I stay flexible enough that even when I'm having those difficult internal experiences or I'm engaged in a bad habit, um, that I can continue to make sure that I'm um, overall moving towards those things that are important to me. Um, so very, very quickly within the time that we have left, I'm going to do a very quick tour, tour through the ACT matrix and um, how we use this clinically. So we have our, our four questions here across the four different uh, boxes, but one of the key tasks that we're really trying to do is help our, our clients as, as they're going through this is to notice this uh, cycle that might develop on the left side of the diagram between our internal experiences and, and away moves. So in this example, we might have fear and anxiety showing up and it can lead to a lot of avoiding social events. Um, but if we really, really value our social connections and, and interacting with other people, this can really get us stuck away from those uh, core things that we find important. Um, so one of the tasks of ACT is really giving that flexibility um, uh, skill to individuals so that even with the fear and anxiety showing up, we can still move towards an, a valued action like attending that social event in this case, um, whether that's in, you know, even in the face of fear and anxiety or just real recognizing that that's a value that we hold. Um, so one of the key things in ACT is this model of, you know, how we can get stuck on, on the left side of this diagram here um, between our internal experiences and our away moves. Um, and then how do we shift over to move towards those values? Um, and this is in, in many ways very much uh, a, a self-functional analysis. So we help the client kind of start to recognize their, their triggers. Um, and again, what, what their behavior is actually serving. Is it serving an avoidance function or is it more of a uh, you know, function towards moving towards those things that are that are reinforcing to us like our our values and our goals. Um, and oftentimes, when we're working with kids, you know, we use different ways of graphically showing this to students. So this is kind of our our, our monster over here who's demonstrating psychological inflexibility by kind of moving away from the the right side, the toward side of our of our diagram. Um, and what we're hoping for is to kind of give a more balanced view where we're able to kind of accept um, all aspects of our experience and, and move towards those things that are important to us. Um, and oftentimes I'll say that, you know, this is something that is very, very human and experience it on a, on a daily basis um, from, you know, trying to resist that cupcake. Um, but we also notice that in severe clinical situations, uh, people can get viciously stuck on, on the left side of the diagram where, you know, their avoidance or whatever cycle that they're in um, just loops them down further and further until they're, they're really, incapable of moving out and what we're hoping to do as our goal is to kind of viciously move in the on the positive side of this loop and really help the person loop between their their values and what they find important and and those positive actions um, and this is even in the situation of where they might have unwanted internal experiences and still being flexible enough to to, to take those uh toward moves 
Um, and you can see that there's a lot of um, act matrix uh, models out there. And, you know, this is an example of how it's often used in trauma. Um, and, you know, going through the same situations of what's important to the individual. Um, but on the left side of the diagram, there might be a lot of traumatic memories showing up. And as a result, a lot more away moves that are happening. Um, and so the skill here would very much be how do we, how do we escape that stuck loop and move towards those things, uh, so towards the, taking those uh, toward moves. Um, so I'm actually going to just pause here because I know we're um, getting very close to the end of our, our time. Um, is it okay if we go for just a few more minutes or? Sure. I'm okay with that. Mm -hmm. Perfect. So very, very quickly, um, when we're doing the ACT matrix, there's a certain um, set of skills. And again, this is not necessarily very linear. So we often say we loop around the matrix like we just did right now together um, until we start to see some of these patterns. So our first task is to sort across these four boxes. Um, so we ask those four questions. Not always in order. Uh, you know, if our student comes in and they're very upset, we might just start off with the internal content. Um, we're also looking for those hooks. Um, so what's kind of the starting point of, of, of a cycle that our student might be going through? It could be something else that someone else did. It could be an internal experience showing up. Um, we're also always prompting for workability. So this is kind of what Sean was also talking about. We're not necessarily challenging. We're, we're just um, pushing towards, is this workable for you? So if, you know, if you've identified what's important to you, um, and are the actions that you're taking or how you're responding to even your internal experience, is this working for you in terms of moving you towards those things or is it really keeping you in this loop on the left side of the diagram? Um, we also always stay within the present moment. So we want to make sure that throughout this exercise, we're always prompting back for the individual to be noticing um, everything that's happening in the moment or has happened maybe on that same day. Um, and being a behavior therapy, we're you know, at the end of the day, we're always looking for a change in action. So we, we want someone to be more accepting and nothing changes in their life. So we want to make sure that if we're, if we're teaching these skills, that they're actually able to um, become more flexible, not just with their emotions, but also start to see robust behavior change that's going to sustain over time. Um, and oftentimes when we're, when we're doing this, um, just looping around the matrix and bringing out that pattern um, itself can be enough to make someone flexible. But in some cases, we need to target these processes more directly. So um, you can see on this slide here, so, sometimes if we notice, like we had the question earlier of a student that's just really not into um, either expressing or communicating their values or may not even really know it, um, we can start to focus more on e any one of these areas. So, um, you know, the value, you know, the child is really lost and they don't really know which direction they want to go into. Um, we can do activities like a value sport where we give them values and we have them rank them, rank the values. Um, oftentimes we do an ideal narrative. So if, you know, you had a magic wand, what could your, what would your life look like? Um, no limits. Um, so just describe what that is so we can see if there's any, any values that come out of that. Um, and you can see that across all of this, we have various different strategies. Um, I often mention that, you know, the toward moves and the committed actions, that's pretty much the whole armament of all the behavioral strategies that we always use. Uh, but now we're just kind of adding a lot more strategies across the rest of this, uh, these processes over here. Um, so this is the list I created. There's obviously a lot more here, um, but we, uh, you know, obviously can't cover the full scope of it. We did want to leave um, anyone uh, watching or listening with resources. So uh, one thing we'll obviously uh, share this PowerPoint. Uh, and there's actually more examples after, after we're done for today at the end of the PowerPoint. Um, but we also wanted to shout out to uh, Phil Tanaglia, who actually 
Um, he is here with me in New Jersey and he does uh, the ACT Matrix in schools. Um, and in fact, he's one of the uh, first people that started doing it in schools and he's really great with it. He actually does um, on his website free webinars once a month um, where he goes through various applications of the ACT Matrix in, in school settings. Um, and then there's also the uh, website for contextual behavioral science that has a lot of uh, free resources and access to the larger community of researchers and practitioners. And it's really cheap. I think it's like $10. Um, and they give you a lot of um, tools, the clinical tools, and um, all kinds of other resources for free. So it's a really good website um, to gaze at in. Um, and, you know, Sean and I also made a list of, of different um, podcasts that are, have been out on this topic, um, obviously besides uh, this one. Um, and also just a list of books, uh, other from broad ACT books uh, that are out there for the therapy um, to the books that are actually on the ACT matrix exercise that we just showed. Um, there's a lot of self-help books. Um, I almost always recommend Get Out of Your Mind and Into Your Life. It's one that I've used myself. Um, but you can see on the right over here, there's a teenager version of it too. So teenagers, if they want to use it for themselves. Um, there's ACT books on adolescents um, and different models of working with adolescents through ACT. Um, there's even ones on parenting um, and, you know, having advanced topics in ACT. Um, and then finally, also books on contextual behavioral science, so kind of the bigger field in which um, ACT is in. So with that, I'm actually going to just uh, stop here and see, uh, thank you for uh, having us on here and see if there's any more questions. Um, and I think that was, that was an awesome kind of... Um Overview because I feel like you know going into it I really didn't have much of a clue and now I feel like you know one I'm interested like this sounds <laughs> this sounds really cool and really yeah. helpful um and I feel like it's pretty functional and something that um you know I, I could feel comfortable doing and picking up and plus all the kind of resources that you put in the PowerPoint's really good with um um you know helping to explain how to implement some of this and so i think that our viewers are going to like this and that I mean, those that are really interested can go and pick up some of those resources that you're talking about so that's awesome thank you <laughs> yeah. tremendously helpful will you will you be at nasp in atlanta in february not this year for me uh, <laughs> yeah i think uh it depends on our funding so i'm actually out of a special education department so i tend to attend every other year Okay. Um, last year, I think, well, actually this year, earlier this year, Sean and I did a workshop on ACT at NASP yeah. um, and using the ACT matrix. So, um, you know, and I just wanted to also mention that one of the things that we always say with if you're trying ACT is that because it does build on CBT and a lot of traditional behavioral strategies is that we often say take it in small steps. Um, so, you know, if you're doing your, your FBA or if you're doing CBT, try to add in a little bit of value piece of it. Um, I started off by just adding in, instead of just doing a strengths profile and, and goals, I just started asking my students about their values. Um, and I was too afraid to kind of do the whole full jump into ACT when I started off. And I slow, slowly started to build out those little practices in there. So if anyone is interested in doing that, you know, it builds in a lot of those traditional strategies. So, you know, just pick off the little pieces of it and see what you're comfortable with and, you know, take those toward moves if you're interested in applying it in your setting. Cool. Awesome. That's great. All right. And um, so maybe we can count on seeing you. I think after Atlanta is in Baltimore, so maybe we'll track you down. That's that's yeah. on my turf here. So I'll find you in Baltimore. <laughs> Very cool. So this is enormously helpful and interesting, and I'm looking forward to looking, checking out all of those resources. So thank you so much for your time tonight. Uh, thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us.
Yeah. Thank you. All right. And I want to uh, remind viewers that um, I think 12.2 is our next podcast, and we're talking statistics again, part two. Um, so I'm hoping to get um, through some of that, that awesome stuff that we hit in part one. I'll cover a little bit more of that, and then I've got some some questions that I'm just dying to ask about grade norms and age norms and like that whole thing that always blows up on, on our Facebook message boards where people are arguing and, and just kind of that everyday stuff that we as school psychologists maybe need to explain to parents and stuff. So I'm excited for that one too. <laughs> yeah, check out the event page on School Psych Podcast page on Facebook and you'll be able to say you're interested and you'll get a reminder. Sounds good. All right. Good night, everybody. Bye, everybody. Good night.